The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. The fastest growing church in the world right now is Iran. Before the Iranian church for many years, it was the underground church in China. And in the early 1980s, the church in Ethiopia exploded under communist and, and Marxist regime. And in the early 20th century, it was the Korean church. In 1900, there was only 1% of the population in Korea that identified with Christianity. By 2010, 29% of the population, over 16 million people in South Korea. In Ethiopia, there's another movement happening today, a revival movement. And there's similar awakenings happening around the world, uh, among Muslim peoples, among other cultures. And I thought deeply about this myself, and a lot of people have asked me this question lately. Why is it not happening in the United States? And that's a fair question. I mean, there's been over six revivals in the United States since the early 1700s. I mean, we see it all through Scripture. It's almost normative in some sense in the early church where, you know, Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. We see the Apostle Paul, he would go into a town, he would preach the gospel, people would be saved, churches would be planted, he'd go back and the churches had exploded. I don't know what all the answers are. I think there's a lot of dynamics involved. It could be a different sermon altogether. But I will say this. Here's what I do think. is I think we're a lot closer to revival here in the United States than what we, we think we are. And to me, that's encouraging. I'm going to read for you several verses that describe the church. And there's one very specific trait that sticks out in every single one of these verses that I think the churches around the world that we see that our experiencing revival and awaking also have in common. <clears throat> Revelation 7, 9 through 11, the Apostle John describes the church in heaven as a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God worshiping. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, describes the church as being one body, one spirit called in one hope with one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In the book of Acts chapter two, Luke describes the church as all those who believed in Jesus Christ as their savior and were together having all things in common, sharing with each other as there was need with one mind, breaking bread and taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were saved. Jesus said in John 17, verses 22, 22 through 23, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I am in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you have loved me. Unity is the one common characteristic. They were one in everything that matters. Title of this message today is Serving for Maturity. Maturity is not an end in and of itself for believers. It's only a means. In maturity, we find unity. We find oneness. And where there is unity in the name of Jesus Christ, we find God's activity. The greatest tragedy for the church today is to be a church who's fractured by division, by strife, slander, immorality, jealousy, disputes, dissensions, or anything else that can tear down a church, rendering it useless for engaging anything involved with God's sovereign activity. And this really could be part of the explanation for why there's lack of revival in our country today. So I invite you to go with me into your Bibles, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. We're going to be speaking, we're going to be talking specifically today on the importance of serving for maturity in the church. We're going to read the text and then we'll jump into prayer. Verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask for clarity in your text today. Uh, I thank you for, um, for this text in particular that you've already used in the first two services. And Father, I pray that you will give us incredible clarity to see what you were doing what you were doing then through Paul and what you're doing now through the church. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. We normally associate serving with participating in church ministries or outreaches or mission trips or programs when really the essence of serving in the church is investing in other believers for their maturity. So I'm going to say that one more time. We often think serving in the church means we participate in a program or outreaches or ministries or some other function of doing in the church. When in fact, really we're called to serve one another for each other's maturity. That's really what we're called to do. And out of that maturity, others will grow in maturity and God will call them to serve where he calls them to. And in that, the entire church matures together. And so we're asking the question today, what can believers do to serve the church for its maturity? Point number one in your notes is mature believers can initiate and lead to building up of others for everyone's maturity. In this text, in, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, six excuse me, it's, it's part of a bigger discord that Paul started in chapter 14, verse 1, and he carries it through to 15, 13. 
And what Paul is talking about here is we've had an issue. He's had an issue that he's had to deal with with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the issue is that they have not been able to come to an agreement as to how they are to walk as Christians together. The Jews are saying that um, you need to practice certain dietary and ceremonial and Sabbath laws, and, and the Gentiles have no idea what they're talking about because they have no background in Jewish culture. Um, the Jews themselves um, are being very judgmental and condemning. And at the other side, the Gentiles are doing the, the Gentile Christians are doing the same thing in response to the Jews. And so Paul, in all of chapter 14, is explaining to them that they both stand on firm footing together. And that is, they both are followers of Jesus Christ. They both are zealous for Christ. They both are walking their lives out in accordance with how they believe they're being faithful to Christ. And Paul says that's the first foundation we need to start from. We're not starting with, we're not starting with a believer and a non-believer in this context, and we're not starting with someone who's professing to be Christian, but, but walking in sin, unrepentant sin. We're dealing with two believers here who genuinely believe by conviction that they're glorifying God in the decisions they're making. And so that's the firm foundation that Paul establishes with them. Then from there, he explains, now for those of you who think you still need to adhere to all these other rules, you're weak. There's liberty in Christ. There's liberty in Christ to not have to practice ceremonial laws, Paul is saying. To not have to worry about not eating certain meats, to practicing the Sabbath on a specific day. Paul is saying very clearly that Sabbath was not made for man, but man for Sabbath, right? Because that's what Jesus said. Paul's saying very clearly here that the strong are those who understand their liberty in Christ. And that the weak, because they don't, in 15 verse 1, Paul is saying to the strong, you must come alongside them. And so what we see here in 15 verse 1 is we see Paul that says, in verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And here's what Paul is saying here. I'm going to break this text down really quick. There's two key words here. Um, ought, which essentially what Paul is saying here, it's not, it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. What he's saying is you ought to bear that load. He's saying you are to bear that load. If you are a mature Christian, part of your mature character in Christ is that you bear the load of weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he goes on to say, this word bear isn't, doesn't just mean that you tolerate them. It literally means, it's a picture word in the Greek, bear, to pick up the load and carry the load for another. So what Paul's saying here is, you are to walk alongside of them in relationship and edify them. So that they at one point will understand what it means to have liberty in Christ. And so that's the first piece that, that we see here in verse 1. We see part of the problem here with the weak was that they, they actually understood God's word from a knowledge standpoint, but they didn't understand grace. And so it required those who were strong, who understood God's grace, to not criticize them, to not judge them, but to come alongside them and encourage them and build them up in the faith. And it required selflessness. 
And so the strong, if I can summarize the characteristics of the strong, the strong are to walk selflessly. They are to die to themselves. They are to initiate and embrace one another across disagreements. If there's a few ways that a mature believer can live out being a mature believer that encourages a weaker believer to, come, to walk with them, it is that in their liberty, they abstain from what they could otherwise partake in. And that's what one of the essence of the teachings in Christ's liberty that Paul is teaching in Romans 14 was, you may be free in Christ to do things, to partake in certain things, but you, you are free also to abstain. And abstain for the edification of others around you. And so one of the things we see in a strong, mature believer is they don't quarrel over opinions. They don't cause another brother and sister to stumble spiritually. They exercise humility, faithfulness, and thankfulness. The strong accept and embrace with encouragement the zeal, humility, and faithfulness of those who are weak in faith. The difference between them, again, is conviction. A mature believer always keeps in mind that he is not the Holy Spirit. Has anybody ever been in that position before? Right? Feel like, i got to say something to this person. I've got to say something, Lord. Give me the opportunity. And God says, you're not the Holy Spirit. I'm working on him. Or I'm working on her. And that's important for us to understand. Paul even says it here in Romans 15, 4, excuse me, 14, 5, that the weak, excuse me, <clears throat> God will complete the work that he has started in all of us. So it's God's job to do the edification. It's, it's up to us to come alongside in that process. The strong align with the ultimate mission of Christ to bring peace with God when they carry the burden for another believer. Paul says in Romans 14, 19, to pursue the things that might make for peace and do not destroy the work of God by tearing down another for the sake of liberty. Or excuse me, liberty. Pursue means to chase and to seek with earnestness and with diligence the things that make for peace, not conflict. So literally, we are to pursue peace. Not to just keep our distance if, you know, there's tension with somebody. It's a brother and sister in Christ. We're literally to pursue peace with them. And we're not talking about carnal peace here. We're talking about the peace of Christ. That's incredibly important. Kingdom of God is not needing or drinking, but for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I want to share that's not in my notes and I've been processing through it the last service too is when we talk about these things, oftentimes we allow things to go undone or fester in relationships or not be dealt with because we don't, we don't understand what God's vision is for us. See, maturity, like I said in the beginning, is only the means. It's not the ends. Like to come to church on Sunday or to be a part of a small group or any of those things, it's not the end. It's part of the edification process. It's part of the sanctification process. But God has a much bigger plan for us. When a church walks in maturity, God can use that church in incredible ways. When a church doesn't walk 
in maturity and they allow divisiveness and they allow little things to happen that cause division, then the church essentially is not useful for God's purposes. And so Paul has a bigger vision in all this. Paul, remember, was writing to the church in Rome and planning to come to them when he was done taking an offering to Jerusalem. And then from there, the way that Paul writes out Romans is very systematic in the, the theology. Paul is, is preparing them to be a launching pad for mission work everywhere else. Paul sought to lay a foundation where there was no other foundation. And his next stop after Rome was Spain. And so Paul was calling them to maturity for a reason. It wasn't just for their own benefit. It was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so that's important for us to understand um, in this context. So how does the strong know when they are done coming alongside the weak? If we're walking alongside the weak, we're dying to ourselves and we're coming alongside them. How do we know when we're done? Well, when they have this outward focus for other brothers and sisters in Christ around them themselves, and they recognize that that person there needs to be edified, and that person there needs to be edified, and that person there needs to be edified, that's when we know. And this leads us to our, our second point here. Investing in others is necessary for the maturity of the church. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. We serve for maturity by investing in others. If we're focused on building up the church, we'll avoid the things that tear down the church. The strong, mature believer understands that God has designed his kingdom on the rails of relationship. Christianity is not fully lived out in isolation. And therefore, a certain amount of maturity only happens in relationship with others. And if you've been at life for any amount of time, we call that community. But more importantly, the investment in relationships that's intentional, we call that discipleship. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It involves a commitment with time spent sharing in each other's lives, building up trust and transparency. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And this is, this is really Paul expressing part of a vision here. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we present every man complete, or mature in Christ. It is for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. So Paul's saying here that, listen, the strong, the mature, we're to die to ourselves for our neighbor's good, to his edification. That requires a process. That requires time. It requires commitment to another person. Now, what I will say here in this text, so we don't have any misunderstanding, is Paul is not advocating the text to please men instead of God. When he says, please your neighbor, he's not, he's not talking about man-pleasing. Okay? He's talking about advocating for the edification of others, which just means simply to build up for maturity in Christ. If we were trying to seek to please men, if any of us are trying to seek to please men in any regard, that's a sin. Paul says this, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Christ, excuse me, Galatians 1.10. So pleasing for the good of others leads to edification. In this second part, it's kind of a tongue twister, but I'm going to get it out. And not seeking personal gain to avoid hurting others in the church is not loss 
but gain. Not sorrow, but joy. I'm going to say that one more time. Not seeking personal gain when you can. When you can, when it's available and it's there and no one's going to question it, but not seeking personal gain to avoid hurting others in the church. Paul says, that's not loss. That's gain. That's eternal gain. That's what we're talking about here. And it's not sorrow, but it's joy. We're built up, we're edified, and when we're edified, we strive for the edification of others, and the church matures. If Jesus said we're to love our neighbors, which he did, right? It's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbors, which he says in Luke 10, 27, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, in Mark 12, 28 through 31. When he said that, he was referring to everyone. He was referring not just to believers, but he was referring to non-believers too. And if he said, love your neighbor, love that non-believer, how much more for us should we be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, Paul said, I became all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things, and this is key, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23. That's another key piece, so that Paul could become a partaker of God's activity. And don't misunderstand me as I'm standing up here sharing this message. One of the things that continues to come to mind um, as I was preparing this message, and even in the first two messages, is I spent a lot of time in 1 Thessalonians, and Paul said this one thing in 1 Thessalonians to that church. He said, I don't, I don't need to tell you how to love one another. You're already excelling there. But I tell you, still excel more. So even though the church in Thessalonica was thriving, and they were walking in the Spirit of God, and they were, they were living out the Christ life the way that God had intended for them, Paul said, still excel more. And this is, this is where my heart is today in this message. And that leads us to Point number three, Jesus Christ is the example of biblical maturity. How can a believer serve for maturity of the church? It's two words. Follow Jesus. It's really that simple. Follow Jesus. And if we're not sure what that looks like, well, then all we have to do, Paul gave us a scripture reference here in Romans 15, 3, Psalm 69. It's an Old Testament text which is considered one of the messianic psalms that King David wrote regarding his own situation. And yet God was foreshadowing Jesus in it. The second part of verse 9 is found in Romans 15.3, and it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is the image of Jesus being so consumed with zeal in doing the will of the Father that it consumed him. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 3, excuse me, 4, 34. The reproaches upon God the Father became Jesus' reproach. If you don't know what a reproach is, I'll just share a few words with you to describe it. It's to bear the blame, the curse, the blaspheme, the shame, the disgrace, and the insults. Jesus bore it all. And he went to the cross bearing it all. He was so consumed with doing the will of God the Father, that Scripture says he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Being made in the likeness of men and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. So Jesus' Jesus's zeal 
for the Father's will consumed him. So much so that he came in the flesh to reconcile sin for us. He humbled himself by coming in the flesh. And then he humbled himself even further by going to the cross. Apostle John reminds us of Jesus' zeal zeal for the Father in John 2.17 as Jesus turned over tables in the temple. We've all heard, many of us, most of us have heard those stories. And he commanded those in the temples selling with the money changers to stop making his Father's house a place of business. For us as believers, dying to ourselves as Jesus died to himself is necessary to serve others and for the church to mature. If we don't understand this peace, then we won't walk in unity and maturity. But if we understand this peace, now God begins to move in some credible ways through a church. Luke 9, 23 through 24, one of, one of the you know, most quoted scriptures when it comes to this context is Jesus said, if, if you desire to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Those who wish to save their lives will lose it. Those who lose their lives for my sake, they will find it. This is, this is what Paul's talking about here. Are we willing to walk this way as the example of Jesus for the edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to abstain? Are we willing to lay down? Are we literally willing to die to ourselves that another might be raised in maturity? A preacher named Henry Varley, who probably no one's ever heard of, once said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. A preacher listening to him by the name of D.L. Moody determined, I'll be that man. Now for anybody who knows who D.L. Moody was in the latter half of the 19th century, he was that man. He was. And the ripple effects from how God used him are still being felt today. And so here's my thought. D.L. Moody's in heaven. Who else is there? But who else will be that man now? It's not just a one-time thing. Who else will be that consecrated man or woman that will serve God? This leads me to point number four. The Bible leads, guides, and reminds us of the direction of our hope. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Jesus, if Jesus is our example for serving for maturity, then the Bible is our instruction for serving for maturity. There's no greater source for hope than in the Bible. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, and you can probably finish the other half of it, right? And a light to my path. One of the most encouraging scriptures at a time when some of us can be in our darkest hour. We also see, when we talk about scripture, of all the people that came before Paul in the Old Testament scripture, and this is what Paul was referring to here. They anticipated the coming of Jesus, the coming of Messiah, but they didn't know what that looked like. And so by faith, they trusted God, not knowing what was coming. And they died before seeing the promises, yet it was because of how they lived. They served faithfully for the maturity of others in their walks. It's how they lived that we're encouraged 
by their lives today. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, Therefore, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the encouragement that we have in the word of God. So how can, a, how can another brother or sister in Christ serve for the maturity of the church? I'll say this. I didn't say it in the first two services. I'm not sure why. Know God's word. Know God's word. It is encouragement for your life. It is breathing life into you at the times when you need it most. And guess what? When you know God's word... Guess what? You can breathe life into others when they need it the most. Know God's word. Every truth we ever need to live this life rests in God's word. Every circumstance you're ever going to go through or have gone through can be dealt with through God's word. There's not a thing that's ever gotten by almighty creator God. There's not a thing that's happened in your life that he has not been aware of and he has not addressed in his word. And this leads us to my next point. It's God's grace, not our works, that enables the church to mature together. It's this piece right here that Paul brings us back to. Paul just finished giving a load of instruction in the first four verses, really addressing things from 14.1 and culminating in the first four verses of chapter 15. And now he comes back to the reminder that we all need. Because Paul's got us all worked up now to go do. And Paul's saying, no, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own strength. It has to be by grace. Believers can only serve for maturity by God's grace. And what we see here in verses 5 and 6 is we see a prayer that Paul gave to the church after he instructed them. After he instructed he said, good, here's the instructions. Now this is what I'm going to pray for you. And it's applicable for us today. Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying here is, you need these prayers in order to do what I just told you to do in verses 1 through 4. But I'm praying them in such a way so that when you actually do what I instructed you to do in verses 1 through 4, God is going to be glorified. And you're all going to be in one mind, in one voice, as he's being glorified. And that, and that same perspective holds for us today. We can't do anything in our own strength. We're called to encourage each other and to edify each other. But we can't do it in our own strength. We can only do it by God's grace. And these are the three pieces um, that I use in my own life as I'm filtering through how I walk in grace. Number one, God's grace consists of God's love. Number two, consists of God's forgiveness. Number three, God's mercy. Those are the three big ones that I always filter as much as I can through. So God's grace is his love, forgiveness, and mercy. How do we edify our other brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we loving them? Are we forgiving them? There needs to be forgiveness. And are we given mercy? 
Mercy is relenting when they don't deserve it, right? And that's what we were just talking about, dying to ourselves. When we have the right, we abstain. And my last point, and I'll close here, the maturity of the church ultimately, that's why I said Paul has a bigger vision, it's ultimately for God's glory. It's ultimately for his glory. When we receive each other and both our weaknesses and strengths, we don't just do it for each other, we're glorifying God through Jesus Christ. When our focus is maturity, we gain unity in Christ Jesus. And when the church is walking in unity, the church will find itself in the center of God's activity. God will use a simple church who walks in unity to change the world. After all, God's called us all to the Great Commission. There's three billion people in this world who still haven't heard the name Jesus Christ. Isn't that astounding? There's over seven billion people in the world and 40% of them have never heard the name Jesus Christ. The name above all names. They've never heard. And it's not, because they don't, it's not because they don't want to, it's because they don't have access to it. And so what happens to a church? What happens to a church when they get what God is doing and they say, this Christian life, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about what he's doing to reconcile humanity to himself. And he's doing it through his church. And the church is his tool to do that, which is made up of his people. It's not buildings. It's not structures. It's not resources. The church is God's people. And when we understand that, and we understand that the greatest peace in all of it is the love of Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Listen, don't ever get sick of that verse because we learned it in Sunday school. It matters. This is God's design. This is what God intended for every single one of us to be a part of. Listen, if we just come to church on Sunday and on Wednesday and we don't do anything else and we think we're, we're, we're doing something for God, forget it. God's plan for us is not to go through our routine for 50 years. God's plan for us is to come together in unity. God is blessing us with material resources in this country. He's blessing this church with buildings. Praise God. Thank you for that. But it's a tool. And it does not replace the three billion people that need to hear from Jesus Christ. And that is why God is building his church through us and every other Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Jesus-surrendering church in this country and around the world, so that we will come together in unity through maturity and take the gospel of those who have never heard, that they might have the same hope and eternal life that we have. So my question as I, as I go, to, go to us, take us in prayer today is simply this. Where are you? Where are you? Are you just coming to church on Sunday? going to a small group, or maybe this is a couple times a year you come to church because it's the holidays? Or do you really want to get in on what God has for you and for his church and for the world? Where are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for everyone here. Father, you brought them here for such a time as this. 
that they might hear your word in some context. Father, if there's things that need to be stricken uh, from, from what I've said, strike it, Father. Um, but if there's something, Father, that um, resonates in the hearts and minds of everyone here today, Father, uh, God, I pray that it, that it grows. I pray that it grows in a way where you bring this church into a unity through maturity in ways we've never seen before. That, Father, we see reconciliation where it needs to happen. Father, we see relationships mended where they need to happen. We see relationships grow where they need to happen because, Father, it's not about us. It's about you. And, Father, we'll trust you with what you do through the process. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.